I think most of us have that friend who always seems to be in the know. He has the fountain of knowledge, the deep thinker, the prolific reader, but someone who isn't consumed with letting people know they're the smartest people in the room. You just know they are. They'd be your lifeline if you're playing Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Growing up, my go-to guy was Bob Furlong. I met him in my early teens and we've been close friends since. One of the smartest, most well-read and informed humans I've ever met. History, politics, culture. He's also a Montreal Canadiens fan. My other who I met more recently is Cam Barr. On top of being well-versed in so many areas, I call him our human Google. He's one part MacGyver and one part Grizzly Adams. He makes his own beer, can build a shelter with a camping axe, and his smoked ribs rival the best I've ever eaten. Now he's a Toronto Maple Leaf fan, so sometimes hope does overcome logic. But I am attracted to people that really are curious, deep thinkers, people that can form a rational opinion, who make you think and question and converse. And in the media, I think most of us have that columnist or magazine writer or pundit that we turn to that earns and deserves our attention. One of these people for me is someone called Zach O'Malley Greenberg. I started reading his stuff years ago when he wrote for Forbes magazine. He's their senior editor of media and entertainment. I always love that intersection between pop culture and the business of doing business. You probably have also read him in New York Times, and Washington Post, Billboard, Vibe, and Sports Illustrated. Zach is a prolific writer. He's got four books, one on the three kings, Diddy, Dr. Dre, and Jay-Z, and hip-hop's multi-billion dollar rise. Then he took on Michael Jackson, Inc., the rise, fall, and rebirth of a billion dollar empire. Empire State of the Mind, how Jay-Z went from street corner to corner office. A-list angels, how a brand of actors, artists, and athletes hijacked Silicon Valley. It's a fantastic read. And he has one coming out called We Are All Musicians. And as a child, Zach also was an actor playing Lorenzo Odon in the 1992 film Oil. It started Nick Nolte and Susan Sarandon. Sometimes I wonder if people realize how incredible you truly are. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. And this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Zach Greenberg, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thanks so much for having me on. Listen, from my description of all you've done, including a thousand articles in the mainstream press, fifth book on the way, child actor writing for yourself at Substack, I would imagine my listeners might peg you at the twilight of your career, but you're just getting going. How old are you? I'm 36. So hopefully, uh, yeah, hopefully not in the twilight just, just yet. Lots of runway left, but you started writing at age 14. What did you write about back then? I had the best job uh, a 14 year old has possibly ever had, which is reviewing video games for Boys Life magazine. Um, and so not only did I get to write about video games, uh, and, uh, I think Boys Life paid me $25 an article, which seemed amazing at the time. Uh, but I got to keep the video games, uh, when I was done. And if I liked them, that was great. And if I didn't like them, I could sell them on eBay. You know, it's wonderful. Growing up, you know, the person that had the new football was the, the, the most popular neighborhood. You must have been the, uh, the friend everybody wanted to know because of the uh, inventory of games that you had. Well, I did. I had the football game. You know, I had, uh, I think it was <laughs> NFL uh, 2K was, was what was the big game at the time. And um, there was a Sonic the Hedgehog game for Sega Dreamcast, which for about five minutes was the best system out there. And then it, you know, it got surpassed by all these other, uh, all these other newer ones. But, um, but, you know, it was, a, it was quite a way to get started uh, in, in the, um, in the journalism business. And, um, you know, it sure was a lot of fun back when I was 14. Now, did you know back then that writing would become your life or was it just a great way to get free video games and make some cash? 
at the time I kind of thought, you know, more of the latter, but, um, I actually was trying to avoid becoming a writer for most of my life. Um, or at least let's say most of my youth, uh, both of my parents uh, are writers and, you know, they've had a lot of ups and also a lot of downs. Um, both of them have written books and screenplays and, and all kinds of things, but, um, you know, they both had sort of a lot of career instability. So, you know, as a kid, um, just kind of seeing us, um, you know, be very well off and then being not so well off, um, just kind of depending on the, on the cycles of the industry, uh, it, it actually really turned me off of, of writing because I, I, uh, I wanted something more solid, um, you know, more dependable as a career. Why do you think your parents never chased security and stayed with their passion of writing? Oh, I think they just loved it. I mean, my dad always said, um, you know, find a job you love and you'll never work a day in your life, you know, because uh, it, it, it doesn't feel like work. Um, I think my mom didn't love it quite as much as my dad did or, you know, does, but, uh, but, you know, they're both really good at it. So, you know, I think there's also this from both of them, um, sense of like, well, I think for my mom, it's her, her thought process was more along the lines of, you know, I, I know I can do this really well and I like it. Um, you know, it, it's tough, but why not do the thing that you're, that you're best at? And, you know, for my dad, I don't know. I mean, it probably is the thing that he's best at too, but he just really genuinely uh, loves it. I mean, he's 85 years old today and, you know, he still stays up until four or five in the morning, just writing, um, writing, writing, writing. So uh, I think in my case, it ended up being a combination of the two. Um, and I, I realized, you know, basically at some point in college that try as I might, um, I kept gravitating towards writing, whether it was the college newspaper or, uh, you know, summer internships at Forbes and that kind of thing. And um, I found out that that I both liked it um, and that it was probably the thing that I was best at. Uh, I could always sort of write my way out of, you know, whatever hole I was in. And um, and that really tended to enjoy myself while doing it. How did you find yourself a child actor and in, in a fairly major film? Yeah, so uh, 1991, Lorenzo's Oil. Um, I was six years old. When I was in kindergarten, a friend of mine had been in a couple of commercials and I got jealous. And I uh, asked my parents if I could be in a commercial too. And they said, well, you know, um, why don't we see, uh, maybe we could find an agent. They found me an agent and I didn't get any commercial rules, but I somehow um, kept getting called back for this movie, uh, Lorenzo's Oil. And um, one thing led to another and I got cast as the title role. Uh, opposite Susan Sarandon and Nick Nolte. Um, and so that was sort of my, my first uh, experience with showbiz. What was it like to be on set where, I mean, you're the cute kid, but the, the major actors must be getting absolutely fond over. Did you, did you get a sense even back then that there's hierarchy to society or was it just such a fun experience? You didn't really even factor that in. Um, it, it definitely wasn't fun. Uh, you know, simply, I think because of the nature of the film, you know, the plot is basically that a, a, a child comes down with this rare disease and um, his parents teach themselves how to essentially become medical researchers 
in order to find a, a way of curing it. Uh, and so, you know, there was a lot of time um, where I was pretending to, to play a sick child. And I think, you know, in my, in my little brain, it, it, it started to become pretty confusing. I spent so much time playing a sick kid that I began to wonder if I was sick. Um, and so, you know, it, I don't, I'm not sure you know, that it was sort of like the, the typical child actor experience. Um, you weren't, you weren't protecting the home, like in home alone. In other words, I, I was just going to say, it would have been a lot more fun to be in, in home alone, uh, you know, messing around, uh, and, and beating up bad guys. And what about, you know, the movie where it's this whole sense of these parents researching, going beneath the service to find another solution, another answer. Did you think that in any way that impacted you? Because your entire life is about diving beneath the surface to find, you know, meaning and in, in cause and effect. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny. I mean, I think I must have absorbed some of that um, as a kid because one of my sort of personal philosophies is there's always a way. There's always a way to, you know, I think you said before MacGyver, uh, to kind of MacGyver something together, um, whether it's just in, in life or in, in work. And uh, I think with writing, you know, I mean, that that's kind of the, the whole point. Everything is this um, big puzzle and you got to sometimes, you know, the, the, the first way of solving it is not available to you. So you have to kind of be resourceful and, and, um, and you know, dig around and, and, and find another way to do it. Um, and that was definitely what Lorenzo's parents did. You know, there was always this idea that maybe your article gets turned into a book or your book gets turned into a movie or your article gets turned into something else. You know, you were going to be around to, to sort of like reap the rewards of that by betting on yourself and being a journalist. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Zach Greenberg. Zach's a brilliant writer. And his forte is to cover people in the news and uncover what really matters. We're about to learn what he thought about some of the top celebrities on the planet. Now, Zach, a lot of people just hope to get a writing gig out of school. And I know you went to Yale and you worked with the university paper. Getting a job at a small town newspaper or a local radio station is kind of considered rite of passage. You get into Forbes. How did that come about? It was funny. I was at college and one day I walked into the newspaper headquarters. Um, I noticed on the billboard and the bulletin board, there was a letter from an alum who worked at Forbes and she wanted us, you know, students to apply for internships. And I thought, you know, um, I really do like writing. And although I've been trying to avoid doing it as a career, um, this seems like fun. Uh, I've always been interested in, in business. And um, when I was a kid, age seven or eight, I was, I always cared a lot about baseball and I would pour over the baseball statistics in the, in, in the box scores in the newspaper. And my stepmom said, well, you know, could we maybe channel some of that energy toward the stock market? You know, when I was, when I was seven or eight. So she taught me about mutual funds and uh, the magic of sort of compound returns. And, um, and she told me for every dollar I, I invested in mutual funds, she would give me a dollar. And let me kind of buy into her existing mutual funds. And I thought that was a great deal. So I sold all my baseball cards and started buying mutual funds. And then I would pour over the, you know, the, the financial papers, um, you know, when I was in middle school and, and, and kind of rack up these, uh, these gains. And so I already knew a little bit about that kind of thing when, when Forbes, you know, came calling and, um, that led me to apply and, um, 
you know, sure enough, I ended up as a sophomore writing stock picks for the for the magazine about why you should buy. I think my first one was L3 Communications. It was this military um, technology company. You just call up, you know, Wall Street analysts to kind of get their opinion on, and their thesis and put it all together in an interesting way. And boom, there it goes in the magazine. So um, from video games to stock picks, that was sort of my uh, <laughs> my next move. Quite quite a leap. Did you ever feel like you were an imposter? I mean, Forbes is a serious magazine. You know, a lot of people read it to make investment advice. You're a sophomore give, helping to shape that, their thinking. Do you ever feel this was over your head or you just had that sort of youthful approach that said, why not? You know, yeah, I think there are always moments of, of imposter syndrome, you know, for, for everybody or, or, or anyway, most people and certainly for me and at different points. But one of the things I realized when I got there was that most people who worked at Forbes were not, um, you know, business first. In other words, they were writers first and they were learning about business rather than the other way around. And I think the Forbes philosophy was it's, you know, easier to, to hire a good writer and teach them about business. Um, than vice versa. So, what did you shift from talking to analysts and forming opinions about what stock to buy to actually interviewing individuals and their sort of trajectory in life? Yeah, so I did two summer internships uh, for Forbes, and I, I freelanced. I think during the year when I was in college, and then came on full time in 2007. And I think that's when it really began. Um, I wrote a couple features. Uh, you know, in those in those days, you would kind of be a general assignment reporter and, and fact checker. And when you weren't fact checking, they would just kind of you know let you roam wherever your interest took you. And then and then if you pitched a story that was of interest, you could go out and and write whatever it was. So uh, I think one of my first stories was about nanotechnology and this professor at Sandia Labs in, in um, out west who had developed this technology where you could sort of almost remote control uh, bugs. We had a lot of applications for cyber warfare and things like that and, and, and spying. And then um, I think my big break came around the same time when an editor walked into my cubicle and she said, hey, you're under 30. Do you like hip hop? And I said, I love hip hop. Uh, you know, I grew up in New York. It was all around. And, um, you know, hip hop and grunge rock were my favorite genres of music growing up and, and still are. And she said, great, you're going to help me put together this list of the top earning rappers of all time. Off we went and I wrote a story about how Tupac Shakur was making more money dead than most rappers were alive. And then the five living rappers who were making more, we called them the hip hop cash kings. So I was out in, uh, you know, we, we put the story to bed and, and, and off it went to the presses. And I was out in, you know, I think it was New Mexico reporting the story on nanotechnology. And on the radio comes Forbes, one, two, three. Forbes, one, two, three. I get money, I get money. And it was Jay-Z, Diddy, and 50 Cent who had put together a, a remix of a song to be all about Forbes in honor of their inclusion on this list. I got back to New York and everybody was like, wow, I think, I think you're onto something here. And uh, the editor who had assigned me shortly le thereafter left, went to a different job and she said, you should really make this your thing. And so I did. And so the Hip Hop Cash Kings package, uh, I did, I think, for a decade plus until I left Forbes recently. That was my baby. That was that was how I really began um, to form, you know, part of my career that that uh, that I'm most passionate about. And when you go into an individual interview, I mean, you're 37 and you look young for your age. How do you find that balance of power between 
your desire to go beneath the surface and find content that matters and the celebrity's persona and all the walls that come up with it. How do you, how do you make sure that drawbridge comes down and you actually get inside and get the story you're after? I think it's been an evolution. You know, early on for me, there was this sort of almost famous sort of aspect to it. And I think that worked to my advantage because, you know, here I was 22 years old going and, and interviewing these famous rappers, you know, this, this dorky Jewish guy, clearly not part of the scene. But um, I think in a way it was sort of disarming. It was perhaps easier than it would have been if, if I were, you know, some big swaggery Wall Street type. I think it sort of in a way made some of the folks more comfortable. As I got older and, and sort of more experienced in the field and, and people begin to recognize my work, you know, I, I would have big A-list rappers who would, at the beginning of the interview, say, Zach, I, I'm afraid of you because you edit this list and where I land on this list is very important to me. There, there's no, it's not really a subjective list. It's an objective list. It's quantitative, not qualitative. It's who earned the most money in the year. But there was a great degree of, of lobbying and, you know, saying, oh, I earned this much for, for this deal. And then I would have to go double check a lot of it. By the time I really got rolling, I, I had to work harder to sort of put the people I was interviewing at ease, you know, to find a way to get back to the more disarming kind of nature that I had in, in the beginning. Um, and I always find that with people who are well known, you know, you, you walk around with them and, and people will, will walk up to them on the street uh, like they're some kind of space alien, you know, trying to touch them and, and grab their clothes and stuff. And and I think with any celebrity, you know, what they crave more than anything is just to be treated like a human being, even just talking about mundane things, uh, you know, and, and not being hounded for autographs and, and, and all that kind of thing. And so it was pretty simple for me. You just, you just try to treat them like people and, you know, maybe even talk about some boring thing in your life, like, you know, the, how hard it is to find parking or whatever, um, or, you know, talk about the Yankees. Or, and, and I think that the more you can get people to forget that they're in the middle of an interview, the more they, the more they open up. You know, you're talking about embellishing wealth. I mean, wasn't that the, the great Donald Trump play that he was always trying to exaggerate his net worth so he would get to the top of the list of Forbes magazine? Absolutely. And, you know, that sort of behavior is rampant across many industries. Um, and, you know, certainly within hip hop and the entertainment world, yeah, a lot of folks uh, trying to get that number up higher. Of course, you know, it's funny, there are also a lot, a lot of people who want their number lower uh, for various reasons. So maybe they have... Um, uh, you know, a divorce coming up or a paternity suit or, or uh, you know, uh, some kind of alimony situation, child support. So, you know, uh, there are a lot of <laughs> a lot of times when I, I was, you know, argued down or someone would attempt to argue me down or try to be excluded from the list, which, you know, it, it's not the top 10 people who want to be on the list list. It's the top 10 earners or whatever, top 20. Um, so, you know, there was actually a lot of arguing down as well as arguing up, um, I think, across all the different uh, areas that I reported on. Yeah. Hi, this is Tony Chapman. You can download my chat with Zach Greenberg wherever you get your podcasts or visit me at chatterthatmatters.ca. When we come back, Zach goes from penning articles to writing books and his subjects are people like Diddy, Jay-Z, Dr. Dre, Michael Jackson, and many more. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. A big shout out to First Up with RBCX Music that promotes emerging Canadian artists. They provide a platform for these artists to perform 
to find new fans through media exposure and access industry experts and mentors. RBC is enabling Canadian talent to continue to hone their craft, progress their careers, and follow their passions. Supporting Canadian artists matters to RBC. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. My guest today is Zach Greenberg, former child actor who joined Forbes magazine and moved up to becoming one of their editors. Today, he writes exclusively for Substack, which we'll talk about later. Zach, you've written four books. You're about to launch your fifth. All are about household names, but I love the fact that you go back to that child figuring out mutual funds because you connect pop culture with the business of doing business. And I want to talk about your first book, Empire State of Mind, how Jay-Z went from street corner to corner office. What was that like to kind of cover his journey? Because it really does start in the bleak streets of Brooklyn, goes into his drug trade, and then it sort of ends up today as one of the most beloved celebrities on the planet. It was a wild experience. And, um, you know, I started writing it, I think, in in 2009. Jay-Z was in a very different place professionally. I mean, he was probably worth about a third of what he's worth now. Uh, he had only just married Beyonce. And I think he hadn't quite crossed over into being the, the mainstream A-lister that he is now. I mean, he was definitely up there, but he wasn't in sort of this uh, rarefied air. You know, I thought there was a pretty good chance that I was going to get to talk to him for the book. And his team kind of kept saying, oh, maybe he'll talk to you. Maybe he'll talk to you. But as time went on, I realized that that, that was not going to be um, happening. And I had to, you know, just kind of figure it out on my own. And so I had this book deal from Penguin. They had read my work and I don't think they knew that I was 25. I'm not sure that they knew that I had no idea how to write a book. The, the way I figured it was just sort of writing 12, four or 5,000 word features, you know, magazine features. I took every chapter. It would start off with, a, with an interview. I'd really try to put the reader, you know, in the cafe that I was having lunch with Fab Five Freddy in or, you know, um, somebody like that and um, bring to life some aspect of, of Jay-Z's journey, you know, through that person who, who had spent time with him at some point. You know, because he didn't end up cooperating uh, with the book, I had to dig even deeper. And so, you know, I found a lot of people. I mean, I just scoured Facebook for people who had gone to high school with him. And I went out to Brooklyn and interviewed them. I found the guy who got him into the drug trade. And we, we sat down at a like an Applebee's or something. And, you know, he gave me his whole deal. The guy who convinced him to stop selling drugs and to focus on the music, you know, all these great stories that I might not have gotten otherwise. And I think one of the things that really resonated with people about this book was um, the deals that didn't work because Jay-Z up until recently has really just tried to give off this image of utter invincibility. I think it's hard for people to relate to that and learn from that because, you know, for entrepreneurs, I mean, failure is part of the journey. In fact, failure, have you, you know, more ideas don't work um, then ideas do work, right? I mean, so it, it's about um, learning from the ones that don't work that, that you really are able to, to get, the, you, you know, there's a saying, you only have to be right once, right? Um, if you're right in a big way. I think that's what um, has resonated with, with readers so much for this book to the point where I'm now we're on the fourth printing of it, fourth edition, and it just came out the billionaire edition of Empire State of Mind 10 years later, talks about how, you know, he tripled his net worth from the first edition, um, you know, to now. 
and talking about how he got into things like investing in startups and, and, and all that kind of thing. Yeah, you talk a lot about his investment in Uber. I mean, that's a very astute move on his part when, you know, the persona of a lot of hip hop is about I show my wealth through my entourage and I show my wealth through my materialistic. It was a it was a real eye opener, I think, that you talk about, to, you know, that there's a, a very different vein now running through that world. And that is invest some of my earnings in things that are going to take care of me for many decades after I'm, I might be even playing music. So I thought it was a brilliant. Have you ever, have you ever spoken to him after the fact now that you're in your fourth edition? I did. I ran into him at uh, a music festival that he had put together in Philadelphia because it was a couple of years after the book came out. I went to the bathroom and I, and, and I walked out of the porta potty and there was Jay-Z. He was standing there with Beyonce, walked over to him and I said, uh, Hey, Jay, because uh, what are you going to call him? Like Mr. Z. Uh, so I, I walked over and I, and I said, hey, Jay, I'm the guy who wrote the book about you. And um, he sort of pretended not to hear me, walked off. And just as he was about to disappear around the corner, he looked back over his shoulder and he, and he said, that book was horrible. <laughs> and then just kind of, you know, uh, disappeared into the crowd. And um, so I immediately ran back to the media tent. And I wrote up a post called Jay-Z's review of the book I wrote about him. <laughs> that book was horrible. So I've since run that anecdote by a few people who are close to him, including Diddy. And, and Diddy said, he was just messing with you. He's a cool cat. But, you know, in any case, I didn't write the book to sort of get Jay-Z to be friends with me. I, I wrote I wrote the book because I thought he was a really interesting character and, and you know, um, influential and, and, you know, important figure in, in the world. And I think that there are so many lessons that, that his career can, can teach people. So. so you're on your fourth edition, you know, you got something to the core because people, I think teaching people that there's more than just the persona is such an important part of life because we, uh, we put people on, on pedestal sometimes. And as, as you said, uh, it's their failures and it's overcoming odds and finding a way through obstacles that to me are, are the lessons worth celebrating, not just the fact that I've arrived. Your, your second book, uh, another well-reviewed one, you really go after the king of pop, Michael Jackson. And I think the title says it all, The Rise, Fall and Rebirth of a Billion Dollar Empire. Kind of goes back to almost your first big article where, you know, some of these celebrities, their wealth got reinvented and recreated after they passed away. But why Michael Jackson? And what was it like trying to um, to get aside a his story that was meaningful versus maybe the, the fodder that we've been fed for years in the mass media? Yeah, I think one of the things that inspired me to write the book was doing this list of, uh, it's a little bit morbid, but the, the top earning dead celebrities. And um, it's a Forbes annual fall special, you know, Halloween spooky kind of thing. When Michael Jackson died, uh, it was all hands on deck. And this is before I was sort of the music guy, but I, I wrote a piece about um, his publishing catalogs that he owned, uh, including the Beatles copyrights and some others, and how all that was, you know, probably worth over half a billion dollars. And at the time, he had about a half a billion dollars in debt. And it was sort of like, well, you know, how, how is this all going to play out? But the estate ended up coming up with all this new business and, and, and really kind of turning things around and, you know, didn't have to sell the catalog at sort of a fire sale price, ended up selling for quite a bit more years later. You know, as time went on, I would, I would always, you know, do these rankings of the, the top ranked dead celebrities. And Michael Jackson was always, you know, I mean, not only making more than any dead celebrity, but making more than, um, in some cases, any living celebrity. 
it occurred to me that it was not just savvy operation by his estate, but also the groundwork that he'd laid during his own life. And that this was sort of a counterintuitive approach. Uh, you know, people don't think of Michael Jackson as being a savvy businessman. And he certainly made a lot of bad decisions, but, you know, he also made a lot of brilliant decisions and a lot of ones that, that are pretty revolutionary, you know, for, for music and intellectual property rights, things like that. So I thought I would dig into this story a little bit deeper and that, you know, this, this might be my, my best written book, really deeply reported, you know, talk to Barry Gordy and, you know, the Jackson family and, um, you know, a lot of artists who'd done business with them and some great stories from people like 50 Cent and John Bon Jovi was one of my favorite stories, uh, which, you know, he, he, he recounted how basically he and Michael Jackson overlapped um, in the 80s in Tokyo and they were doing these shows. Uh, you know, I think Jackson was at the big stadium and Bon Jovi was at the, the smaller arena. Their manager said, oh, they should hang out together, you know. So they go up and they, they meet Michael and his, you know, upstairs penthouse suite and he's got the whole floor. He's got special wooden um, dance floor so that he could practice his moves. And they hang out for a little bit. And Michael's like, "Oh, I gotta, you know, I gotta go to bed and, and, and sort of, or I, gotta, I gotta spend more time practicing." Bon Jovi's like, "All right, well, we're gonna go party." So they go downstairs to their suite, and before they leave, they say, "Oh, come, why don't you come down, Michael?" And he says, "Oh, maybe I'll." So anyway, they're downstairs, and about an hour later, they get a knock on the door, and it's just the chimp, Bubbles the chimp, and Michael has sent down his chimp. You know, I guess dropped him off. Anyway, Bon Jovi proceeds to, you know, and the, the band proceeds to party with the chimp all night and they trash the hotel room and, and I guess return the chimp. They leave and, and, uh, and the punchline is basically that the, the hotel people were like, what happened to your room? And, and they blamed the chimp. <laughs> but, uh, but, but in any case, you know, it just kind of goes to show Michael was such a perfectionist. He, he was not about hanging out and having the rock star lifestyle. He was all about, you know, practicing his routine and, and getting it perfect. So, uh, you know, little nuggets like that were what really you know, made that book come alive for me. If an up-and-coming rapper, and I've, you know, is is uh, he's like working on a bunch of different things, and you know, he's like, here, I've got I've got a clothing. I was like, I don't even know what your music is. I don't want to buy your clothes. You know, it's like you, you've got to have a brand before you can start selling it. I think you're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Zach, your fourth book, A-List Angels, a band of actors, artists, and athletes hack Silicon Valley. This is really a phenomenon that's happening now. And you covered very in the early days where, you know, celebrities stop sort of singing for their supper and just endorsing things to actually investing, creating their own products, building their own publishing empires and monetizing it. Tell us more about what is going on and why that would matter to, uh, to the average consumer. The startup world, there are all these consumer-facing technologies and companies, and you know they all live uh, on your phone. And so, you know, what else is on your phone? Social media. And I think Ashton Kutcher was a, one of the first to realize that he could parlay his social following, you know, into a chance to invest in some of these companies. And he actually saw what Fifty Cent did, uh, taking equity instead of um, cash for his vitamin water endorsement deal back in, I think it was two thousand eight. Early aughts, and then in 2008, 50 Cent walked away with 100 million dollars when Coca-Cola came out and, and bought Vitamin Water's parent company. Uh, Ashton Kutcher said, "Well, why don't I go and, and start investing in some of the startups myself?" And it was able to accumulate stakes in Uber and Airbnb, and and kind of bring his uh, reach, his social reach, to to kind of popular help popularize them and create value. And and that was the genesis of that, and that was what A-List Angels sort of came out of was how. 
you know, Ashton Kutcher and, and later Nas and Shaquille O'Neal, Jennifer Lopez, Serena Williams uh, started investing in these startups and finding a way not to just, you know, make some money, but create sort of long-term generational wealth um, and, and open doors that, that had been previously closed in the entertainment world. And the next move seems to be, you know, when I look at uh, Gwyneth Paltrow with Goop and Clooney did with Tequila, uh, Ryan Reynolds, what he's done both with his production company and uh, Aviation Gin, it seems now they're going to the next step saying, I can invest in these companies and bring my celebrity factor, but I can also create my own companies. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think, again, to go back to hip hop, that was how the Jay-Z's of the world, the Diddy's of the world, you know, made, built a lot of their own wealth, uh, was, was starting record labels and clothing lines and things like that. I think now there's there's a sense that why limit it to the things that entertainers are traditionally involved in? The fastest way of building wealth is, you know, to own something in its entirety or, or to own a majority stake as opposed to investing. You know, it's, it's riskier because, you know, you're putting a lot of your time into something, especially if you're an entertainer, you could be making a million bucks a night on tour. You know, there, there's an opportunity cost to creating your own. And I think that's why a lot of entertainers still um, gravitate towards investing in other people's companies because they can kind of spread it around a little bit more and, you know, amass portfolios of dozens of companies. In many cases, get free equity just by virtue of being famous. In many ways, you followed a similar plan. I mean, you left, you know, editor of Forbes and an incredible reputation there. And now you're only writing for Substack and you're obviously looking at the subscription model saying my content is good enough to find an audience and an audience is willing to pay for it. So what motivated that move? Yeah, you know, it was a, it was an interesting moment for me. I mean, it was sort of mid-pandemic um, last winter and my career at Forbes was old enough to drive, I like to say. Uh, I wanted a new challenge and I had another job lined up at a uh, at a rival publication where you know they they were willing to let me just focus on the writing, which is what, what I was really interested in. And, um, signed an offer letter and I said my goodbyes at Forbes and I took a few weeks off to just kind of relax. And um, and right before I was supposed to start, and, and, and they said basically that they wanted to have all this ownership over my intellectual property. You know anything that kind of derived from what I was doing, you know, even if it was sort of indirect, they wanted to own it and control it. And uh, so I brought in my literary agent to negotiate and, um, you know, we, we tried to come to some kind of compromise, but they didn't really want to budge. And they said, basically, this is our final offer, take it or leave it. And I said, I'll, I'll leave it. And they said, do you want to sleep on it? And I said, no, <laughs> I walked away. And it felt really good at the time. Um, and then, you know, I sort of woke up the next day and I was like, well, got to figure this one out. But the idea that, you know, I wouldn't have not only any financial interest in, in my own work, but creative control really rankled me. And so uh, I, I had been following what Substack was doing. And the whole model was, you know, that you get to be independent and you own your work and you have a direct relationship with your audience just really appealed to me. So I, I cold emailed the founder and, you know, it being a startup within a couple of weeks, we worked out an arrangement that, that you know, worked for me and, and kind of gave me some security to kind of relaunch and, and try to bring my readership over to to, um, to the platform. It's just really invigorating to, to be able to have that relationship and to be your own boss and to, to know that, you know, whatever you produce, you can, you can sort of do what you want with it because it's yours, as it should be, because you made it. And your fifth book that's coming out, We Are All Musicians, what, what's that book about? Yeah, so on Substack, um, I write twice a week. Once a week, I write a music business blog. I call it Zog Blog, and you can subscribe at zogblog.co for free. 
the other time per week that I write is uh, I write this book. We are all musicians now, and I'm serializing it um, also through the same platform, Substack, and the same blog infrastructure. The idea is that over the past several decades, there have been a lot of huge sweeping changes in, in you know from the end of physical retail, uh, not end, but the decline of physical retail to the rise of crypto and NFTs and so forth. And almost all those trends have started out in the music business. Um, so if you follow the musicians, you can almost tell the future. And that's the premise of We Are All Musicians Now. And I think that was a big part of me going over to Substack is they, they really liked the idea of, of um, someone serializing a book on the platform. And, and, that's, um, and that's what I'm doing. What advice can you give to aspiring young artists and musicians how they can find the audience that their art deserves. I'd say, first of all, you have to find a way to, to get your work out there. Um, but, you know, you also have to not give away so much of it that, that people don't want to come and consume it, you know, um, wherever, you know, in whatever form it is, whether it's a, a book or a, an album um, or something like that. So you really do kind of have to, to thread that needle. And, um, you know, I think a lot of it is sort of like retail politics, you know, um, the idea that you're, you're going around from uh, sort of diner to diner, you know, trying to recruit people to vote for you. Uh, I think that that's how everybody kind of needs to start. Um, and not even start. I mean, I think as I'm building up my, you know, essentially rebuilding my audience um, over at Substack, you know, it, I think the, the first steps are just, you know, email every single person, you know, every person that you've ever interacted with all your acquaintances and, you know, friends of friends and that kind of thing. You can't just passively blast things out on social media. You have to sort of actively recruit people to find you, to, to activate and, and be a part of your mission, um, your journey. I think that one-to-one relationship, the, the more people feel that they have sort of like an active um, connection with you, um, the more they're going to be involved in your work. And not only that, they're going to go around and tell other people about your work. It's sort of like in hip hop, you have a street team. They go out and, you know, and, and bring the flyers and, and um, pass out CDs and stuff in, in the old days. I mean, every, uh, you know, I think every creator needs their own street team. And that starts with super fans. Right? You got to have people who are really dedicated, who are really willing to go to bat for you and, and put their credibility on the line by saying, hey, this is something that's really worth your time, you know, like consuming this really awesome piece of creative content. So my final question for you today, if you were to have a dinner party, and I know this is sort of a cocktail party thing, but I'm curious with you because you and your wife, if you're going to invite six people over to dinner, knowing how curious you are and how you like to peel back the onions, who would would be at that party? Well, I think it'd have to be, you know, uh, folks who I haven't interviewed uh, before and and perhaps, you know, try to get a a nice blend from across uh, a bunch of different worlds. So I'm going to go with Barack and Michelle, uh, you know, for, for the first invitations. I think it'd be fun to have an athlete. Uh, Michael Jordan is somebody who I've always thought has a really interesting outlook on business. Lady Gaga, I've never interviewed. I always thought uh, she's got a really unique perspective. Ah, uh, like I love somebody who like, kind of shake it up um, a little bit. Let's, let's go with Elon Musk, you know, and... Um, Maybe some humor. Uh, so let's toss in uh, Jerry Seinfeld. Well, I would certainly serve cocktails of that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Zach, I always end my podcast with, the, with three takeaways. And, and the first one is you found your passion at age 14. And although you continue to 
deny it over time, you realize that there's so much of your mom and your dad pouring through you in terms of your love of writing and the magic of putting words together that really make people think, feel, and, and act. I think the second one, which I thought was wonderful, was a sense of side hustle that, you know, inside all of us or many of us is this sense of what else we like and love and want to pursue and that compass North Star that just shines up there. And, and the, start that early. Don't be afraid of your side hustle. Develop it, you know, nurture it, build it. And one day that side hustle might become your hustle. And the third one, which I think is incredible advice for uh, not just aspiring musicians and artists, but for everybody is to, you know, build your network, build your relationships, find your super fans. Don't just give away what you have to offer. Give people a reason to come and consume more and realize in the social media world, you don't need an intermediary like a Forbes that you can you can have that incredible connection with the people that matter most to you, which is people that are interested in. And I, and I began the show by talking about uh, how fortunate I am to have people that I know that are in the know. And, and I have been a fan of your work for many, many years, continue to be on Substack. So uh, Zog, as you call yourself, thank you for uh, joining Chat of the Matters. Thank you, Tony. I really appreciate it. So joining me now is Nicole Kelly. She's the Director of Platform Engagement for RBCX. So Nicole, welcome to the show. And my first question is, what does Director of Platform Engagement do for RBCX? Uh, thanks so much for having me, Tony. Uh, I, I have the best job in the world. Uh, RBCX is the tech and innovation banking arm of the Royal Bank of Canada. So we combine everything you need on the capital side to scale your business in tandem with non-capital solutions supporting scaling tech companies in Canada from idea to IPO. And in my role, I lead and manage our brand strategy, corporate partnerships, ecosystem partnerships, and also support our clients with their PR and media strategies to accelerate their storytelling capabilities. I'm a small business. I'm a tech-driven business. Uh, typically, I would think of RBC as a bank. You're coming in and saying we're so much more. So personalize that for me. What, what, what could I expect from you if I was working with RBCX? The reasons why startups and tech companies choose their venture partners is more than just, you know, who's writing the check. It's what expertise can they bring? What value are they going to add? What Rolodex do they have? What partnership do they have? And it's really goes beyond the check. And I think, you know, bringing that, you know, idea, bringing that platform into banking. And the idea being, if a Canadian FI was going to lean their shoulder in to help tech companies, what does that look like? And what could they do? And traditionally, you know, RBC and many other, you know, banks in Canada, you know, focused really hard on financial products because, you know, that was the easy bread and butter and like they know it inside and out, but really bringing in the, the expertise for everything else. And whether it's, you know, trying to help with your talent, your recruitment, your strategies, your policies on HR. There's a ton of things like to support companies on that way, but a whole breadth of other operational aspects of your business, whether it's, you know, the, the partnerships that you have, the marketing strategies that you have when you try and open your network for a tech company and all the different ways that you can support them. There's just, it's, it's limitless. What advice would you give a startup that would, you know, you're coming in and they're saying, you know, I, 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 we got to get somebody to really get out there and tell our story to get them to kind of make sure that the person singing alongside them really has authenticity, vested interest, really has, can do the brand great good versus potentially great harm. 
the game has changed a lot and it's a lot harder and it's way more expensive to stand out than it used to be. I think it's really easy to spend a lot of money and not really see your bottom line, whether it's, you know, you're following your sales, your brand development, really move the needle. Like any other part of your marketing strategy, I think influencer marketing needs to be laser focused to ensure that you're getting in front of the right people on the right channels. And does this strategy make sense for your business? Like, you know, to your question, the most important thing that for companies to realize is like, who are you attaching your story to? Like, who are you who are you leveraging to help amplify your message? And I think you have to be extremely thoughtful on who that brand champion is. Um, of course, for their audience, make sure it makes sense for your strategy. But more important, what are their values? And, and does their world align with how you see the world? And you can really do yourself incredible, you know, brand harm by really wanting to leverage somebody's platform. But there could be a lot of downsides if you really don't make sure that your values are aligned, both as, you know, people and organizations. You sound like you really don't like what you're doing. <laughs> I mean, you've got so much, you have so much incredible energy. When you come in and, and want to establish this relationship with a tech company, and I would say their immediate blinders might be, you're a bank, you're trying to sell me something. How do you get them to open their eyes and mind to the to the fact that we're actually going to be in this together. Your journey is as exciting to me as it is to you. How do you, how do you get over that bias of being Canada's biggest bank to becoming Canada's biggest bank that's also my best friend? I love that. I, I, I wish I could be everybody's best friend. I think honestly it's storytelling is infectious and when people are building things that are, are are changing the world and getting them excited and when they're telling you about it it gets you excited and you just want to be able to help and i think what what i've realized in being in banking but also being in bc is that you know you can't necessarily invest and back everybody i think it's just that's not realistic but you can always help and you can always listen and you can always share or you can always make an introduction and so i think by leading with how can you open doors and what you can do as small as that can be there's always something you know it's never too early to meet somebody who's going to could, that could play a really big role in your company's growth so i think being able to become people's best friends it's like what can you do for them even if it can't be the core business of what you're offering you can always do something and i think it's very easy to want to do that for all the entrepreneurs when they're building things that really make a difference in the world Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.